today and <clears throat> see all of you. Uh, I have the honor and privilege to bring you the word of truth today. And uh, as we look at James 1.18, and I first want to read something. <clears throat> as I, I started to do this last week, uh, but I didn't get very far. Uh, I read this uh, a year ago. As again, as about um, I mentioned about the uh, the ways that we worship God, and uh, and read part of the, the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and the ways that we do that, and and one of the uh, Thomas Watson would call these the uh, the Ten Commandments of Hearing the Word. And I know Matt's been up here talking about this before. Also, is you know, are we really listening to the Word being preached? And so it's by the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, and hearing of God's word. It is three ways regarding his word, you know, that we worship him. And I'm just going to read a couple of those, <clears throat> excuse me, a few of those ten commandments. He asks, am I really hearing the word of God? Am I a good listener of the proclaimed gospel? Number one, when you come to the God's house to hear his word, do not forget to prepare your soul with prayer. And the first time I heard that, Really thought of that. Maybe I've done that before, but it's just something to seriously consider before coming to hear God's word to worship. Two, come with a holy appetite for the word. First Peter two two. A good appetite promotes good digestion. Three, come with a tender, teachable heart. Second Chronicles thirteen seven. Asking Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Acts nine six. It is foolish to expect a blessing if you come with a hardened, worldly. Minded heart. So our pastor is away today, so um, filling his place, and only made it. I don't know if I was even going to make it through eighteen. It sounds kind of strange. I know sometimes not be able to even hard to get through a verse, <laughs> but I found such weighty, fundamental, and controversial doctrines in this as. Um, as you'll see exposited here, but uh, there's just amazing uh, the truths that were in this one verse. I just can't express the, the magnitude of God's glory that's in his word. So I'm going to read, start with verse 17. Now, if you would stand with me, please, if you're able to, as we read the Holy Scriptures. So we read in 17, or James 1, 17 and 18. Every good, and, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. A gracious God, I just ask that you reveal your truth to us today. Open our eyes and our hearts. Please teach us. God, give us your light. May your name just be glorified and magnified. May Christ's beauty just be magnified today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Maybe seated. So, from six weeks ago, we saw um, 
that whatever we have from above is a gift. It's freely given to us, and we're seeing today that new life also is a perfect gift from above. That's why I titled it The Gift of New Life. We have nothing but what we have received, and what we have received, we have received freely. Some of these gifts are mercy, grace, regeneration, salvation, adoption, righteousness, the renovation of our natures, and eternal life. Today you will hear much about regeneration. So children, we have a lot less children here today, or young people. Uh, Listen up for the word as I'll later define this, and uh, hopefully clearly, and that you understand it. Maybe all that we understand it clearly. So first, I find the order of the verses, this order of the words in the verse, just amazing because it's so critical to first and primarily have the correct view of God or of his own will. If one tries to rightly understand regeneration or new birth without knowing God's sovereign will, then the view will be distorted severely. One would miss seeing the beauty of his majesty his abundant loving kindness, and his tender mercies at work. It's like trying to look at a grandeur, mountainous view, you know, with like foggy or muddy glasses. You know how your goggles get fogged up or your glasses sometimes. You just can't see clearly. The beauty is truly there. Some may be able to see it. You know, but it's just not revealed to your eyes until the lenses are cleared. But once the fog has been cleared away, it's then like, aha, There's the beauty. You can see the mountains. You can see the rays of sunshine lighting up the treetops. All of the created colors. Maybe it's fall time. You can see all the variety of colors there. And the sheer magnitude of the size is amazing. It's beautiful. So I attached an outline. And you'll see we split this verse into four main parts. Uh, One, of his own will. Two, he brought us forth. Three, by the word of truth. And four, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, of course, firstly, looking at uh, of his own will, the King James Version says, of his own will, or NASB, in the exercise of his will. This is known as God's will of decree or sovereign will, not to be confused with his will of command. Okay, so we have the sovereign will and God's will of command. I'll explain those. So the will of command is just simply obedience to his commandments. For example, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's Matthew 7.21. Or as Matt mentioned last week, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's again the will of command. These are commandments. We are to obey them. Other examples uh, for will of command be 1 John 2.17, Romans 12.1 and 2, and there are many, many others. But the reasons to distinguish these is that I don't want anyone to be confused during the teaching, for the, for the teaching. Many people ask, you know, what the will is, what the will of God is for their life. It's one of like one of those big questions out there. What's the purpose for my life? What's God's calling for my life? What should I do with my life? 
Okay? This is pertaining to his will of command. And it's simple. It's obey his commandments. To glorify him and enjoy, enjoy him forever, which is the chief end of man. Many of you might know that as the Catechism 1 for Westminster or some other catechism out there that you might use. So what you do with your life will spring from this obedience, this will of command. Yeah, God might have a specific calling for you in your life, a specific vocation to go into this type of ministry, do this or do this. Okay, but obey his commandments, glorify him, and those things will spring out okay, of the obedience. You know, where should I go for school? You know, what should I do? You know, obey him first. Then those things will come. An important difference between God's sovereign will and his will of command is that man can fail to do his will of command. Right? You can choose not to obey or to obey. You can choose to glorify him or not. But man cannot fail to do God's sovereign will. Man just does it whether he believes it or not. So there are two ways of talking about the will of God, the sovereign will, okay, and this will of command. Both are true, and both are important to understand and believe in. God's sovereign will, <clears throat> excuse me, of his own will comes from the Greek root, bulamai, which means to will deliberately, to have a purpose or be minded. It's like it's the natural bent, it's the inclination of God's heart. A clear example will be as Jesus spoke of the will of God in Gethsemane when he was praying. He said in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what does the will of God refer to in this verse? It refers to the sovereign plan of God that will happen in the coming hours. Wayne Grudem, a, a prominent theologian, seminary professor, and author, defines will as that attribute of God, okay, attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for existence and activity of himself and all creation. So, I guess a good way to think about this is in terms of your own will. We all have our own will, the things we want to accomplish. What's your will? It's a desire, it's some minded purpose that you have and you'll carry out because it pleases you to do so, right? There's an intention, there's a choice involved, or maybe many choices, of fulfilling your will, your desire, the inclinations of your heart. There's certain actions. It is your will. Parents, is your will that your children understand the fear of the Lord because it's the beginning of knowledge? Or maybe it's your will. It would be a good will to have. Therefore, you instruct them in the ways of the Lord. A man's will may be to acquire riches. A woman's will could be the same. Maybe to find, or find a spouse, have children. Children and young people, your will may be to be beautiful or to be physically strong, look physically strong. Maybe to protect your family, future family, or simply just do whatever you feel like doing. It's still your will. Okay? It's still your heart. So here are a couple of the verses for the context of will. With that same Greek root, the Bulamai. It's 1 Timothy 6, 9. <clears throat> but they 
are minded to be. It's those words, minded to be. But they are minded to be rich, fall. Sorry, let me repeat or restart that. But they that are minded to be rich fall into temptation and snare in many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition. Acts 5.28 saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend, it's the same word again, same meaning, and intend to bring man's blood upon us. Do you see the will there, the desire, the inclination? So what is God's will for your life? That your will be his will, that all your purposes, intents, and desires be more and more aligned with his will. That is why we need not only to diligently study to understand God's will and to know him, but again, pray as Jesus does, not my will, but yours, O oh God, yours. It's helpful to note also that you know, God's will can be divided into God's necessary will, in God's free will. I think I put that in the outline. I can't remember. So we have God's will be divided into necessary will and free will. So paraphrasing Wayne Grudem here, God's necessary will includes everything that he must will according to his nature. What does God will necessarily? He wills himself. God eternally wills to be or wants to be. It's who he is and what he says he is. He says, I am who I am. You've heard that before. I am who I am. That's God's necessary will. It's his nature. It's his being. He can't choose to be different than he is or cease to exist. So we saw six weeks ago in James 1.18, no shifting shadow, no variation. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. Cease to, cease to exist. He doesn't change. And there's comfort there. That's where our security lies. But God's free will, or back to necessary will, let me finish that. Um, so again, it's about his being, his essence, and attributes. It's his nature. Okay? It's necessary will. Then there's his free will. God's free will includes all things that God decided to will, but he didn't have any necessity. He had no necessity to will it, according to his nature. Here we must put God's decision to create the universe in all decisions relating to that of creation. Here we must place also God's acts of redemption, redeeming his people. You see, these are all acts. He didn't have to do these things. They were not necessary. But again, his necessary will is it's just who he is. I am who I am. There was nothing in God's nature that required him to decide to create the universe or redeem out a sinful mankind, a people for himself. It's important to understand this, which leads into he is free to decree or not to decree, or to decree one thing and not the other. It is his sovereign and free will and influenced by no external cause. Isaiah 40, 13-14 says, Who has directed the spear of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? See, his decrees are his counsel and his own will, which are external, wise, free, and absolute and unconditional. A.W. Pink calls these the properties of divine decrees. 
You can see there's a lot in this. You could go many places, but I wanted to mention the beginning is hopefully, you know, that's, I, I mentioned earlier in our morning meeting, it's just, I feel inadequate bringing this to you. This is just like a small, tiny glimpse <laughs> of some of these doctrines. So may it just lead you to study further truth and understanding in these. It's just amazing. God is under no control, therefore free to choose what to do and what not to do. Acting according to his own pleasure. Isn't that the way we act? Of our own will, we act according to our own pleasure. At least when we're, you know, when we're selfish. That's what we do. Ephesians 1.11 In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, God works all things, does all things, decrees all things according to the counsel of his will and good pleasure. Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, these are the lenses, these are the clear lenses we need to have on to see God through, to know God through, to know his will. All he is, his necessary will, and all he does, works and accomplishes, is according to his free will and his good pleasure. Romans 9.18 He therefore has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Or the NSAB translates, So he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Doesn't God have this right? Doesn't the potter have the right to work all things according to his pleasure? For the magnification of his praise and glory? So as we move forward, I plead to you just to Examine your beliefs about the sovereignty of God, if you have yet any already. What is the focal point of your theological universe? Are your doctrine and beliefs of who God is built upon milk-based Sunday school messages or indoctrination of Christian pop feel-good music? Mine was for a very long time. Are you limiting God to your finite human reasoning? Or are you diligent in study, fervently in prayer, for understanding to rightly divide the word? Please understand that the holy, omniscient God just cannot be limited to our thinking. His greatness is unfathomable. It's in Psalm 145. So moving on, of his own will, he begat us, or brought us forth. So to begat, or bring us forth, is to bring forth, is to give birth to. Which means to regenerate. Children, remember that word, regenerate, if you haven't heard it before. So regeneration is the recreation of your soul. It means to give us birth as a new being. This is the term you probably heard before, being born again. Which is by the work of God's grace upon our souls, for it is by grace you have been saved. 
Theologian Louis Burkhoff defines regeneration as the act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of his soul is made holy. Who regenerates? God does. God's sovereign and uninfluenced will is the source and basis of new life. John MacArthur. Who's the author of regeneration? God is and him alone. This is known as monergism. The term monergism is a theological term in which the prefix mono means one, obviously. And the suffix ergism, ergon, means to work. Or together they mean to work one. Or, sorry, the work of one. Or salvation is the Lord alone, of the Lord alone. Not a cooperation of man and God. If anyone is to be saved, Jesus must grant everything we need for salvation, including a new heart to believe. So Deuteronomy 29, 4. 36, Ezekiel 36, 26, John 6, 63, and 65, and 37, and so on. So recall again from verse 17, James says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights. Regeneration is a perfect gift from God the Father. It is God who gives new life. It is God who is the author and founder of regeneration. It is freely given Freely given, therefore man is only the receiver of the new birth, just like a child cannot decide to be born. Children, did you decide to be born? I don't think you had a, a say in it. <laughs> Who chooses to regenerate? God does, not us. Look at the verse again. He brought us forth. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. So understand, again, you did not first choose him, because there is none that seek him. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. Man is totally depraved, meaning that by nature we are children of wrath, Dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Hence, we're unable to choose God until he draws or calls one out of darkness into light. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. A glorious day. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This calling is known to many as the effective call. Wayne Groom defines effective call as an act of God, the Father, speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel, in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Is where we come in, where we respond in the saving faith. We trust, we believe. Also, verses 1 Corinthians 1 9, Acts 2 39. So, God's calling has the capacity to draw one out of the kingdom of darkness, enables one to respond in faith and to receive. Receive what? New life. Why? Because of God's sovereign will and good pleasure, acting according to his own will. So what the Bible teaches here is contrary to the easy believism or contemporary 
evangelism, <clears throat> which unfortunately comes from many pulpits of the day. Paul Washer writes in his book, The Gospel Call and True Conversion, One of the greatest crimes committed by the present Christian generation is its neglect of the gospel. And it is from this neglect that all other maladies spring forth. The lost world is not so much gospel-hardened as it is gospel-ignorant, because many of those who proclaim the gospel are also ignorant of its truths. The essential themes that make up the very core of the gospel, the justice of God, the radical depravity of man, the blood atonement, the nature of true conversion, and the biblical basis of assurance are absent from too many pulpits. I myself, I cannot count the times I've sat in a church, not this one. A youth group, rally, VBS, or some concert where people are giving a reduced, watered-down gospel. Saying things like, your life will be roses and riches if you just trust in Jesus. If you just raise your hand and write your name on this card, you'll be saved from hell. What child that hears about hell would not want to be saved from it? Of course, they'll raise their hand and may repeat some superstitious prayer. Are some saved by this? Maybe so. But it would be by God's grace, enabling him to respond in faith and repentance. <clears throat> I have witnessed many that said the prayer or believed when they were children and completely rejected God after that, and continue in a life of unrepentance. I myself was there. If God effectively called them out of darkness, he regenerated their hearts and gave them new life. They cannot reject God nor fall away. All who he calls will come to him, and of those who come, not one will be lost. John six thirty seven and 39 John 18, 9. This is why God's call is termed effective. It's effective. And that's comforting. That's a blessing. The gospel is much more than a mere human decision. Walking up an aisle, repeating a sinner's prayer, signing a card, or simply raising a hand based on emotional experience. Man does not give himself a new birth or life. We would like to believe that, I know. He does not will it. John 1.13 says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man is enabled by the Holy Spirit to respond in repentance and faith. Once he is called out of darkness, the work of regeneration is by the Father of lights according to his gracious, sovereign will and good pleasure. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Visions 2, 4 through 5. Now be aware when one does not understand or disbelieves that new birth is not by God's own will and good pleasure, there's one path left which leads us down to Arminianism and then to Roman Catholicism, in which both of these paths glory the creature and not the Creator. Think about it. If new birth is not solely an act of God, the free gift, that's why it's called a gift, the free gift from God, then man must have a part in it. 
Theologians term this as synergism. There's a synergistic act between God and man, okay, together. Which produces the new birth. So the synergistic act between man, or God and man, which produces new birth, the gift of regeneration. This thinking rejects total depravity of man and says there is some good in man that is able to seek God and choose God. So I hope this makes sense. We are saw in scriptures that man can't choose God because he's in darkness until God calls him out of darkness and regenerates his heart. This is a humanistic idea born out of pride that is contrary to what the scriptures clearly show us. By the exercise of his own will, he chooses to give new birth. Then man is able to respond and called to repentance and faith. It is a monergistic act by God. And because it is, the gift of new life causes one to be awestruck by God's amazing grace that he would choose to save any at all. Moving on to the word of truth. Of his own will, he begat us or brought us forth by the word of truth. This is the means of new life. How? This is the how. How does God regenerate? By the word of truth. We can see this in at least four of the verses as well. 1 Corinthians 4.15, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. 1 Peter 1.23, I have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Romans 10.17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth the gospel of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Number two under this one. Uh, It is the sufficient means of new life. God brings one forth by the word of truth. Therefore, traditions, papal decrees, baptism, confirmation, or penance are requirements for new life or for regeneration. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We can trust the word of God. Scripture alone is our authority. Why? I have A through F here. So why is scripture alone? Why scripture alone is our authority? The word of truth is inspired by God. We know that. 2 Timothy 3.16, for the whole scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. B, God's word is timeless and unchangeable. There's no variation. Here lies absolute truth. Here lies our certainty and security. John 1.1, very familiar verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God is timeless. Immutable. C, it lives and abides forever. First Peter 1.23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And D, it is perfect and proven. Psalm 18.30 As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. 
E, it is living and active. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit. F, the word of God is truth. We can trust the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.15 is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isaiah, 30, or Isaiah 53.4, surely he hath borne our infirmities and carried away our sorrows, taken away our sins. Revelation 19.9, Blessed are they which are called unto the Lamb's Supper. And he said unto me, These words of God are true. You can trust them. The word of truth is the gospel, and we are given new life through it. It is sufficient. It alone is our authority. This doctrine is known to many as sola scriptura. By Scripture alone. <clears throat> and it's a fundamental one. John MacArthur comments First, if a doctrine is truly fundamental, fundamental, it must have its origin in Scripture, not tradition, papal decrees, or some other source of authority. Paul reminded Timothy that the Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15 In other words, if a doctrine is essential for salvation... We can learn it from the Bible. The written word of God, therefore, must contain all doctrine that is truly fundamental and is able to make us adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17 If there were necessary doctrines not revealed in the Scripture, those promises would ring empty. That's the end of MacArthur's quote. If there were necessary doctrines not revealed in Scripture, those promises would ring empty. We saw it before that. Robert Godfrey, uh, a minister in the United Reformed Church and third president of Westminster Seminary, uh, quotes, As Protestants, we maintain that Scripture alone is our authority. Roman Catholics maintain that Scripture is insufficient as the authority of the people of God, and that tradition, okay, tradition and teaching authority of the church must be added to Scripture. Roman Catholicism believes in inspired tradition passed down orally, directly from Christ and the apostles outside of Scripture, without which we do not and cannot have all God's revealed truth. So believe there's inspired traditions passed down from the apostles and from Christ himself outside of Scripture. But think about this. If we cannot have God's revealed truth by Scripture alone, then one cannot be regenerated by the word of truth, as we just see here in James. This is contrary to Scripture, not just there. Many places. So obviously this is where we part ways. We trust that the word of God, the gospel, is our authority and a sufficient means for new life, for regeneration. Again, being dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, gave us his Son, Jesus Christ as the Lamb to reconcile the world unto himself. Of God's own will and according to his good pleasure, he chose some to be called out of darkness into marvelous light. It is by the atoning work of Christ's blood on the cross that we are cleansed from all sin, justified, declared righteous, making us alive by grace to have faith to believe in the word of truth. In that, we would be fellow citizens with the saints and members 
of God's household, that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What a lively hope that is, and what a privilege. To the last part of the verse, that we be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This is the end and design of it. This is the why. Number one, the main purpose, this brings us back full circle to God's will. To understand the end purpose for our salvation, to choose and regenerate a people. One must seek to understand God's sovereign and free will. We are formed and regenerated for his praise and glory. Or as Steve Lawson states, the centerpiece of God's saving purpose in the universe is the revelation and magnification of his own glory. This must be the focal point in our theology, the study and beliefs about the nature of God. Two, there is no greater privilege than new life, to be the first fruits. Charles Spurgeon comments, God intends to put us first. He put his saints beyond all others as his peculiar treasure. See then, dear brothers and sisters, your privilege. You have been begotten by purpose that you may be the choice ones of the earth, precious beyond conception, dear to the heart of God and lying very near to his bosom. And three, lastly here, Realize that with this privilege comes duty. As first fruits, we are but an offering to God. Our substance belongs to God. We are stewards of every gift He has bestowed upon us. You have probably heard, to whom much is given, much is required. There are responsibilities of being the first fruits, of being Christians. You were bought with a price, the blood of Christ, for not your own. We are not to live a life of self-pleasure and vainglory, but give yourselves, your lives, unto God. Do you believe, or can you say, for me to live is Christ, as Paul did? Or as Jesus says in Luke 9.23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Is not mostly what you do right now according to your own desires, your own will, I know it's the battle for me. Taking up the cross is about disowning your own will, disowning yourself, because you were bought with blood. Just because you feel like doing something, children, just because you feel like doing something doesn't mean you need to do it. Beloved, we all need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is our reasonable service, for you were bought with blood. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word is truth. Your word is sufficient. God, would you please just reveal your truths. Give us light. Help us to understand your will. Set aside our pride that sometimes just fogs up our glasses, our lenses, that keeps us from seeing your absolute holiness, your beauty. 
Lord, help us to uh, truly live out being first fruits of the creatures uh, that you've created and that we don't take it lightly, that we know there's a duty with this privilege, that we not only just proclaim your gospel, but magnify you in all things, glorify you in all things, whether we eat or drink in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.